Well, last week we began a series uh, going through the interactions of Jesus. And so we were looking at um, some different interactions of Jesus, specifically with the lowly last week. And uh, we talked about the chosen. Uh, If you haven't watched it yet, watch it. I I keep telling you, watch the chosen. Uh, my brother uh, was w- listening to the sermon, and he called me on. He's like, you didn't even give me credit. I was the one who told you about it. And so, Andrew, if you're listening this week, this is your credit. Um, but anyway, uh, last week we looked at the lowly, okay, and how Jesus interacted with the sick and the demonized and the poor and the hurting and outcasts. And we looked at how Jesus extended compassion to them. And, and then we talked about how he was just, he was around them. That's who he surrounded himself with. And he tangibly showed his love to them. And so this week, we're moving on in a bit of a contrast. We're going to look at how Jesus interacts with the proud. Okay, and, and again, it stands a bit in contrast to his interactions with the lowly. Because the proud are, are the healthy that don't think they have a need of the doctor, Right? And Jesus treats them differently than he does the lowly. So let's take a look. We're going to be in Matthew 23. And this week we're going to be in Matthew 23 almost the whole time. So you won't have to flip back and forth like we did last week. So Matthew 23. And this, let me give you a bit of context. This passage is actually happening during Holy Week, okay? The final week of Jesus' life. And so we're to the very end of his ministry. Um, and in this passage, we're, we're looking at how Jesus is kind of summarizing, if you will, his interactions with the scribes and Pharisees in particular, but I think religious leaders in general, over these three years in his ministry. There's plenty of, of interactions throughout the Gospels. If, if you take that challenge I told you last week and kind of look at how Jesus interacts with different groups of people, you can trace it through the Gospels and see how this uh, works out. But this one, I think the reason why I chose it is because it really does a great job of bringing it all together in how he interacts with and engages the proud uh, scribes and Pharisees. Okay, so let's read verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds, and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. All right, let's pause there real quick. Jesus is referencing these two groups of people here, right? The scribes and the Pharisees. And these are two distinct groups, okay? There's some overlap, right? There are some scribes who are Pharisees, but it's not necessarily like synonymous terms. But in this, in this passage, he kind of groups them together because they also have some similarities, okay? Um, he lumps them here together because both were religious leaders within uh, the Jewish faith. Both of them were very well versed in the law, and both of them sit on the seat of Moses. Now, what that means is it's, it's a, for sure a reference to the authority that they held in the synagogue, in the churches of their day, right? But it also may actually be referencing an actual seat that was in synagogues. Some uh, archaeological findings uh, as of late have found that there might have actually been like an actual seat that they sat in when they read from, from God's Word. And so it would be like our modern-day pulpit, Okay. Um, And so he's saying uh, these guys are religious leaders, they're both experts in the law, and they both sit in this authoritative seat of Moses. And both, as Jesus just told us, 
do not practice what they preach. They, he says, do what they tell you, but not what they do. Okay, and, and here he's, he's seeming to be a little bit ironic here um, in, in how he's phrasing it because there's other parts of the Gospels where he does have a bone to pick with some of the things they're teaching, right? But, but what he's trying to communicate here is that he is highlighting that his main problem is not actually with what they're teaching. His main problem is what they're doing. They don't practice what they preach. They don't walk the talk. They're hypocrites, and he's going to call on that later. And so before we dive too far into this passage and before we get too down on these guys, I, I want to say how many in our day are, are just like that? Listen to this description again about these guys. They, they're serious about their faith. They care deeply about the Bible. They want to see people living out the Bible and they, want to, and they see the world around them, the worldly culture around them in a critical way. That sounds a lot like, like us at times, right? That sounds a lot like evangelicals at times. And so before we go, oh, these silly Pharisees, how could they be like that? We, we've got to stop for a minute. We're going to get into this later. Um, now, what this, I want to say what this doesn't mean. Just because the church and evangelicals have, tend, have tended towards this at times, it doesn't mean that we need to deconstruct the faith and turn away and leave the faith altogether. There's a, there's a movement, there's people out there who are doing that. That's not what I'm saying. But what it does mean is that we need to take an honest look at our own lives. We're going to dig into that more in a bit, but I just don't, when we start this passage, I don't want you to think of the Pharisees as them quite yet, right? We need to start off going, okay, well, maybe... Maybe the Pharisees is us too. Um, the Pharisees, they were the good guys of their day. We don't read it that way because we read through Jesus' eyes. But in their day, they would have been modern-day evangelicals, the, the good guys trying to follow God's law. All right, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor the Christ. Jesus highlights two problems that he has with this group, okay? The first one is that they are burdening others unnecessarily, okay? And they're unwilling to help them. And so the Pharisees in their day, what they had done is you have the, the law of God, right, that you're not supposed to break, things you're supposed to do, things you're not supposed to do. And what they did was say, okay, well, to make sure that we do things right and we don't do the things we're not supposed to, we're going to add like a fence around it. Okay, so if this is what we're supposed to do and not do, we're going to put these other additional laws and things around it so you don't even get close to doing this. Okay? And so they had added all these different things and then they burdened the people with that, but they weren't willing to help the people in it. Okay? So that's the first thing. He's burdening people unnecessarily, or they're burdening people unnecessarily. The second thing that he has a trouble with in this beginning part is they're doing their deeds to be seen by others. And he gives three examples of this, okay? 
One is their phylacteries are broad and their fringes are long. So phylacteries, other than being a really hard word to say, is, is like these little small cube-shaped bases that have, or cases that have little scriptures written in them, okay? Um, and so they, the Pharisees would wear these on their left wrist and also like dangling off of like a hat on, on their forehead. And, and the idea here was, if you remember Deuteronomy 6, it says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. And so it wasn't a bad thing that they were doing necessarily. Um, it was pretty literal what they were doing um, when it probably was more meant figuratively. But that, the trouble with it was they were making them really big, though, okay? So like the, the phylacteries, instead of being a normal size, it was like this big thing. And the, and the fringes of their robe, which was like on the corners, instead of being like a normal size fringe, they were making them extra long, okay? Think about if like you were wearing a WWJD bracelet or something, and then it, but it was like huge. You're like, WWJD, okay? You get the idea? Um, they're trying to be seen by others. Look how holy I am, okay? Um, I don't know if you guys ever, this is a side note, but in high school, I would carry around this big Bible, right? The Christians would always carry it. I didn't put it in my backpack because you can't see it in your backpack, right? But I had, I had like this ginormous life application Bible. Did you guys ever see those, okay? They were huge. It's like the modern ESV study Bible. But I would just rock that thing. I mean, my, this forearm was huge because it would carry I mean, but if I'm honest... Can I be honest? If I'm honest, it was a little bit because I wanted to show off how holy I was, how big my Bible is, right? Um, sorry, that's confession time. So that, that was their first trouble, right? Okay, the, the second thing was they loved the place of honor at feasts and at church. And so they wanted the best seats. They wanted to be in a place where you could see uh, and be seen by people, right? Um, and the third thing he says is they love to be called honorable names. They liked the titles. Now listen, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with a title, okay? When somebody calls you Dr. Such-and-Such, if you're a doctor or Pastor Josh or, or whatever, there's nothing wrong with a title in and of itself. The trouble comes when you start using those titles to start denoting value, okay? And that's, that's tricky because that's a heart-level thing. When you try to use titles to say this person is better than that person, that is deadly. And so Jesus sums this up in verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. What a striking statement. What a good reminder of what we should be about, serving others and humbling ourselves. So next, Jesus shifts to some more explicit rebukes, okay? This is his famous woes, right? Um, now, what is a woe exactly? Because we don't really use that language anymore. Like, I don't walk up to Pastor Grant and say, woe to you, Grant, if you eat my sandwich. Um, <laughs> now, I do warn him about eating my sandwich, but that, it, it doesn't have a woe in it. Um, so what is a woe? Okay, because that's not familiar to us. Well, let me read you a couple definitions. This one's from a scholar named Craig Blomberg. A woe is an exclamation of how greatly one will suffer. It's a mingling of doom with pity. 
I like that. Doom with pity. That's a good definition. Here's another one from Leon Morris, um, another scholar. Woe is to be understood as an expression of regret and compassion. Jesus is not exulting in the punishment that must come, but he is making it clear that punishment will come. Woe is a verdict as well as an expression of sorrow. And so there is this pity that is also mingled with the right condemnation that is about to follow. Um, so we're going we're gonna to head into these woes, but a quick note before we do. If you'll look in your Bibles for verse 14 here, most of you will recognize there is not a verse 14 listed. Um, now, I want to stop and, and take a minute here because when I was a younger Christian, I ran into some King James Version-only literature on a website that I should have known was shady from the get-go, but I didn't. <laughs> and it argued that modern translations like the ESV and NIV and NASB and these things had, had done this thing of trying to secretly take out Scripture, and they were trying to work for, you know, the devil because they had taken out this Scripture. Well, I was like, oh my goodness, um, that's not what has happened, okay? We have thousands of manuscripts available to us now that they didn't have in 1611 when the King James was written. The King James was a phenomenal translation, a beautiful translation, but it's, it's like 400 plus years old. And so there's some things that we've discovered since then. And so of all these manuscripts that we have, these thousands of manuscripts, some of these verses have been found that probably weren't in the originals. And this is one of them. And sometimes they were added like as a footnote to, uh, you know, by a scribe to help explain. Sometimes it was brought over from another gospel that, that was a similar thing. But I, I just want you to know, you can trust your Bible, okay? There's no conspiracy to take word, the word of God out. Um, okay, let's head into these seven woes. These seven woes come in pairs. And so each pair comes with commonality. So one and two go together, three and four go together, five and six go together, and then seven kind of closes out the whole thing. So let's do the first two. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now these two woes deal specifically with how the scribes and Pharisees engaged with people. That's what ties them together. And so Jesus' issue with them is that they are not entering into the kingdom life that he has offered. They've rejected it, but also they're preventing others from entering it too. And so this is the image here, right, of the slammed door. You're shutting the door, slamming the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Um, and they're not only doing that, they're also working hard and actively making God's people worse off. Okay, you, you'll make them twice the child of hell that you are. That's strong language, right? Um, he, he describes it as traveling across sea and land only to make someone twice as bad as they were. So Jesus is bringing this good news of his now present, fully coming kingdom this long awaited kingdom that has been promised since the early days of Israel. And these guys are missing it. And they're actively causing others to miss it too. 
Let's move on to the next pair. Verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So in this first woe, we see how uh, they had some misguided ideas about oaths. They, they, this is really reminiscent of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount teaching where he talks about don't swear by heaven for it's God's throne or don't swear by earth for it's his footstool. The idea is don't have this elaborate system of oaths to try to make your word stronger. Just be a man of your word. Just be a person of your word. Actually do what you say you will do. And then you don't have to boost it with these oaths. But these guys weren't men of their word. They had these elaborate systems of oaths so that you could get out of an oath depending on how it was worded. But it's not a matter if you swore by the temple or by the gold of the temple. It's not a matter if you swore by the altar or the gift on the altar. The point of the oath is you commit to do what you say. And that's it. In the fourth woe, they're missing the point in a little different way. They're trying to get so nuanced with obedience to the law that they're actually tithing of their herbs, okay? Their, their mint and their, their cumin. I mean, it's a, it's a funny picture to imagine. But actually, Jesus doesn't condemn this, okay? Um, what he does say, though, is you're doing the easy thing while you're neglecting the harder, the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, which seems like such an absurd picture, that, that they're carefully counting out their cumin, but they're, they're neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. They're missing it. In the language of our day, they're majoring on the minors. All right, let's move on to the next pair. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean, out the outs, or you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First, clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I love this imagery here. Can you... Can you imagine going to someone's house, they invite you over for dinner, and, and you get there, and they sit you down at the table, and you look, and it's just this beautiful spread. 
I mean, everything, I mean, the food looks beautiful, the whole thing. I mean, you're like, oh, man, this is going to be great. And you sit down, um, and, and this isn't like, this is like they brought out their best stuff, like their china, if they have china. They, they've got that, not, not like paper plates, not even like nicer chinette. It's, it's like the real deal, okay? And you get there, and you're like, this is going to be awesome, this is going to be great. And you sit down, but then you notice, like, on your plate, there's like some old, crusty, like yesterday's dinner on the plate, okay? And then you're like, you kind of notice the cup, and like the, the cup's got like some lipstick smudge on the inside. You guys know what I'm talking about? Now, I would submit to you that no matter how beautiful that spread is, that's gross, right? <laughs> you're not going to eat that. You're going to be like, oh, thank you so much. Oh, I don't, I'm not, I'm not hungry. No, it's okay. That's what's happening here, right? It's a beautiful spread. It looks the part but inside is dirty, is disgusting. And the next image is even stronger, this picture of this beautiful tomb. In the old, old times, in that time, you would have to whitewash the tombs, okay? Paint it white so that you could see where the tombs were uh, so you wouldn't, it wouldn't get lost in all the other rocks. And he's saying, this is the picture of you. You're, you're pretty and white on the outside, but inside is dead people and uncleanness. Their inside does not match their outside. All right, let's, let's head to the last woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we'd lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood against the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This final woe is one of exasperation. You can, you can hear it in its tone. That Jesus is reflecting on how the scribes and the Pharisees, they act like they honor the prophets and the righteous men who have come before, but in all reality, they're sons of the ones who persecuted and slandered and murdered the prophets throughout history. And this is what Jesus is showing by referencing Abel to Zechariah. He's saying, hey, from beginning to the very end, you have been shedding righteous blood. And they're going to continue to prove that this is true of them by the rejection of Jesus. And in a few days' time, their approval and their crucifixion of Jesus, the Son of God. And, and then here in verse 37... Jesus reveals his heart toward these proud scribes and Pharisees, but he also kind of extends it to all of Israel who is rejecting him, right? Because there's a lot of Israel that is still rejecting him. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Can you hear his heart there? It's one of regret. It's one of compassion. But it's also one of judgment, like right judgment. So so we see in this passage how Jesus interacts with the proud. And we see how he rightly judges the scribes and Pharisees. But but how does this apply to us? Like we began this series talking about how we wanted to look at the interactions of Jesus because we want to be able to walk like Jesus walked. And we want to be able to live like Jesus lived. And we want to be able to do what Jesus does. But what does that look like as we engage the proud? It feels a little trickier, right? It feels a little harder to answer. How do we what, or what do we do when we encounter a modern-day Pharisee, a proud person? Well, part of the reason that that's so tricky is because I think part of it is we have to check ourselves first. Before we can move on to the question of how to engage the proud, we have to first ask, are we proud? Because Jesus wasn't proud. Jesus didn't have pride hindering him as he engaged the proud around him, but we do. When we're talking about engaging the proud, the first person that we have to engage is us. And the hard thing about pride is that a lot of times you don't see it and you don't know that you're proud because your pride won't let you see it, right? But here's a couple of diagnostic questions to kind of help us check our heart in this. Okay, the first one. How do you respond when someone confronts you? Like, it doesn't necessarily matter at this point whether they're right or whether they're wrong about their confrontation. But what do you do? How do you respond when someone comes and confronts you on something? Because if you respond in defensiveness and shutting them out and all of that, and that's your default response, then we should check our heart because we shouldn't have that much at stake. If they're right in what they're confronting us about, then we only have to gain, right? And if they're wrong about what they're they're confronting us on, then we are safe in who we are in Christ, and we can say, I hear you. I don't see that. Let Let me pray about this. Let me talk to those who are around me and see if this is something. We don't have to respond in defensiveness. But if we do, we need to check our heart. Second one, how do you respond when you don't feel like you're given the respect or honor that you deserve? The reason this is helpful because it it helps us to see our motives. Whose affirmation and praise are we really after? Because if when we're not treated the way we think we should be treated and we respond by lashing out, whether that's actually with physical words or whether you're just fuming inside, that counts too, right? Then we might be after the wrong person's affirmation. If we are secure in who we are in Christ, then we don't need the affirmation and praise of, of people. Yeah? Um, the third thing are there people you read or listen to or follow that stir pride in you? What do I mean by that? I I mean people that puff you up. Like you leave 
reading or, or, or hearing, and, and you f- have this great feeling inside you that goes, yeah, I'm right and they're wrong, whoever that they is, right? Uh, or if you have this feeling of superiority over, over someone or some group, we've got to kill that now. We can't have any of that. Listen, I, I was thinking about this. There are certain preachers that I actually can't listen to anymore. And it's, it's not because what they're saying has anything theologically inaccurate in it. That sometimes it was really accurate stuff. But the way in which they said it, the manner in which they came, it just stirred this pride in me. And I'm not blaming them for my sin. It's because of my sin. It stirred something in me that had to die. And so part of my process of killing that was I'm not, I can't listen to that right now. Who is that in your life? Where is that in your life? Is that in social media? Are there people you need to unfollow? Are there people you need to um, just graciously be friends with but not follow their feed? That's part of it. Um, these questions, I hope, are helpful. They're certainly not exhaustive. But, but even as I was going through this sermon, teaching this sermon about pride this week, I was struggling with pride. Like, I am not the most humble person on earth at all. Like, you ask my wife, pride is something I regularly, regularly struggle with, that I just filter through life with. And this week was no different. It actually got highlighted even more as I was, I was scrolling through the social media feed, and I caught on something. I grabbed on something. And so then I was fuming on in my own mind, but then later we were talking, and I was talking to her, and just, you know. And she was like, hey, I think, I think you're, I think you're being proud right now, and I think you need to check that. She said in a more gracious way than that. That's just summary. But I was like, oh, man, you're right, and I'm preaching on pride this weekend, right? Um, I wish that was the only example I had of pride that I struggled with this week, but there was more, and more that I'm sure I'm not even aware of. We have got to kill the pride in us, and we need people around us to call us on it, And we need to be vigilant to ask the Lord to uproot that. The good news for you and for me is that the gospel enables us to battle pride and to walk in true humility. Like, we are no longer slaves to pride because of the gospel. And so, first, how how do we deal with this in our own heart? Uh, Here's a few things. First, we acknowledge our pride. Like, we really acknowledge how nasty it is. It's one thing to go, yeah, 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 I'm a proud person. But, but here's something I found helpful. When you put, say, the, these exact words, or you even have to write it down, I believe I am better than fill in the blank. Now, you don't ever say that. But if you have to say it out loud and confess it to someone or just to yourself and the Lord or write it down, it feels, you feel the grossness of it. And that could be a person that you feel better than or a group of people that you feel better than. I believe I am better than blank because that's what goes on in our heart when we have pride. So we we acknowledge it. We confess it to the Lord and to others. We ask the Lord to uproot it. And then we take the necessary steps to put it to death. Again, we're not slaves to pride any uh, any longer but sometimes we still act like we're a slave to it or any other sin for that matter. In Christ, we're free. 
We've just got to walk in it. And then, and only then, after we've dealt with our own pride, can then we, can then we begin to engage others on it. Now, a few quick things that I want to say out of the get-go before we talk about what that engagement looks like. And these are just notes that as I've watched Jesus, as I've studied Jesus engaging the proud. Okay, so the first thing, the proud in Jesus' day were mostly religious people that he engaged with, okay? I'm not saying there weren't proud people in the culture, but the ones that we have recorded in the gospel of him engaging with, the great majority of it was religious people and specifically religious leaders. And so before we move too fast imagining who the proud are, we have to look at the category that Jesus mostly put them in, okay? That was the first thing. Second thing I noticed is that Jesus didn't usually actually seek out the proud. Um, they were usually the ones who found him. Now, why I think that's important is because last week we saw that Jesus actively was seeking out the lowly to engage them. But it's not the same way. It wasn't his normal practice to go and seek out and engage the proud. It's important for us because in an age of instant news and social media, if we spend all our time engaging the proud, we will spend all our time engaging the proud, okay? There will always be something that you can be engaging and correcting. And so I think we take our cues from Jesus and say, hey, as, as the proud come our way, if the Spirit has us to engage them, then we engage them. But that's not the default where Jesus was spending his time. He was spending most of his time engaging the lowly. The third thing I noticed was that the vast majority of the proud, they actually stay that way. They don't change, even with Jesus, right? Jesus, God in the flesh, is engaging them, and they stayed that way. And I think that's helpful for us to, to remember as well, because there comes a point in engaging them that Jesus just kind of left them to be. And he, that wasn't the crowd that he was after anymore. You see that, right, with these woes, this final right judgment that he says. And he says, I leave it to you. Your house is left desolate. And so, with that in mind, those notes, how are we to engage the proud? And once again, we look at the example of Jesus. So as you look back at this passage and others like it in the Gospels, we see three things, I saw three things that I see Jesus doing. He engages the proud boldly, so he, he doesn't back down from conflict. He engages it when he needs to. And he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't sugarcoat it with them. So boldly, he also does it, though, wisely. And so you look at him, and he's wise with his words. He's not just, like, spewing emotional words on them, right, blowing up at them. He's choosing his words wisely, and he's also wise with his timing, if you remember last week as we saw him engaging the, the Pharisees with the woman caught in adultery, like the timing of him speaking in that passage is everything. Like he doesn't initially answer them, right? And part of that is him not getting caught up in that drama that they're trying to bring. He's wise with his words and he's wise with his timing. And the last thing that I noticed about Jesus as we look at his engagement with the proud is he did it humbly. 
So he did it boldly, he did it wisely, and he did it humbly. And the reason I come back to this is because Jesus was able to do all of this in perfect humility. But we are not Jesus, right? But we do have the Holy Spirit the power of the Holy Spirit in us, which means that we need to be constantly checking to make sure that we're walking in Him, abiding in Him so that we don't get puffed up. The warning that Paul has in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It can turn really quickly. In my own life, I can feel like I'm in a moment of humility, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, and then it turns, and then all of a sudden I'm proud, right? It turns out I was trying to do it in my own strength. I wasn't doing it in the strength of the Holy Spirit. We've got to be vigilant in it. Church, hear this warning as if it was written to us. Oh, proud Christian, oh, proud Christian, how often I would have gathered you and your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. May that not be the Lord's words to us, right? May we not be those whose house is left desolate to us, church. What we must be faithful to do is to fight for humility and boldly, wisely, and humbly engage the proud who come our way. And then we pray and we trust the results to the Lord. We're never going to defeat pride by our own pride. And we're never going to defeat evil by doing more evil. Instead, we commit to walk like Jesus did. We commit to live like he lived. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, pride gives way to humility. And darkness is overcome by light. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we, God, collectively right now, just want to confess that we are proud at times. God, that we think that we know better than you at times. We think that we know better than others at times. God, we pray that you would humble us. Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit right now to humble us? Because, God, we want to walk like Jesus did. We want to be a part of what you're doing in this world, in your world right now, that you are bringing about your good kingdom. You're doing it. Darkness is not overcoming light. Light is spreading to every corner of this earth, and we want to be a part of it. And so, God, where there's pride in our hearts, kill it. Put it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us be a people who call each other out graciously in this. And God, would you help us? God, as we engage with the world around us, as, as the proud come to us, God, may we humbly, wisely, and boldly engage them like Jesus did. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are our God. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.